Please pray with me. Loving God, we give thanks for all the gifts in this place, gifts you have given us, gifts we have yet to receive. As the gifts of the words of our mouths and the meditations of all our hearts would be truly acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Two weeks ago, we had a potluck downstairs. It was organized by Deborah Hall and Bob and Patricia Schramm, and our gathering team helped make it happen. We were going to have it out on the lawn, but September 13th was a gray and misty day, so we had it down in our vast fellowship hall. And if you went, you saw a long table with a big spread laid out on it, salads and casseroles, mac and cheese, fried and baked chicken, coleslaw, another table for varieties of drinks, and another table for cakes and pies and cookies. And we had two long rows of tables, which were full of conversation and conviviality. Children ran and played among us, around us, and under us, unleashing all of the pent-up energy of the morning. Long-timers, newcomers, people who've known each other for years, and people who were just getting acquainted. If you wanted to take a picture of what church community looks like, this would be a good time to pull out your smartphone or your camera. A church potluck is an old-fashioned staple of our common life. We could almost call it a sacrament. You have baptism, communion, meetings, and potlucks. Now, we all know the stereotypes of church potlucks, gooey casseroles held together by glutinous noodles and cream of mushroom soup and cheese for a little texture. You might sprinkle onion gratin or potato chips over it or jello molds with mandarin oranges and marshmallows suspended in them like prehistoric creatures in time. Or perhaps a red velvet cake, luscious and delectable. And lots of pie, coconut cream, chocolate, banana, apple, berry pies, some crust with Crisco, some with butter, some with lard, depending on where you live. You can tell a lot about a community by the spread they lay on at a potluck. If there's a lot of butter and cream and mayonnaise in the dishes, you know that they have a theology of abundance about fat and food. And if you lift your eyes up from the table, you'll probably see it among you, incarnate. Or if there are lots of spices punctuating the, di the dishes, curries and chili peppers and things, it either means there's a good ethnic diversity or perhaps a good curiosity about other cuisines. Or if like where I used to serve in the Pacific Northwest, you would find wild salmon in about every dish. <laughs> and it wasn't just one kind of wild salmon, it was king or coho or steelhead or sockeye in pasta with eggs in a cream dip or uh, with smoked to put on your bagel. You can tell if the people who made the dishes like to spend a lot of time in the kitchen you can tell if their lives are hurried and they had to grab something on the run. You can tell if there's some home gardeners in the congregation because of the crisp, perfectly fresh green beans or the luscious, voluptuous tomatoes, heirloom tomatoes of different hues. And I think if you look closely and taste carefully, you may be able to detect which dishes were made by cooks who already know the recipe by heart 
who could do it in their sleep, or the people who carried this recipe down from generation to generation to generation, offering their alterations along the way, or you can tell which dishes were a concoctionist inspiration. Maybe successful, maybe not. <laughs> you see, what dish you bring says something about you. And also, I think you can tell if the dish was made with love. And that goes for a potluck or a restaurant, wherever you are. If the cook had some love for the ingredients and the recipe, and most of all for you, the person who was going to taste it. An essayist, Jeremy Clive Higgins, Higgins, described the church potluck this way. Having worshipped in creed and word and hymn, you now give thanks for the gifts of downtime, of laughter, of fellowship. The children are running and playing tag, their mouths crammed full of brownies, and you aren't worried. There's no time to be tense. Tell stories. Catch up. Rest. Eat. Be glad. He also goes on to say that our experience at the table differs from person to person because some of us have tasted glory, some of us have tasted ruin. All of us, though, regardless of our denomination or geography, have eaten, have fed, and been fed. And this tradition of the potluck, despite the motives by which we enact it and the meanings with which we infuse it, requires food. Despite our differences at the table, it's just food. But as you know, it's never just food. Jeremy goes on to say that he joined church his freshman year of college, and he was located in a very southern town in Mississippi, a state that takes great pride in feeding people. And the church didn't take him into their fold so much as group hug him into belonging. They took seriously their call to love people, especially people who weren't eating right. And he was one of those people. He was an undergrad with an underfed bank account and an eager appetite. And the day he joined the church, he stood in front of the congregation, recited the membership vows, was baptized, was hugged, and then was fed. Over the next five years, he would receive their guidance, their encouragement, their barbecue, their crawfish boils, their sun-brewed tea, and their love. Sweet in equal measure. And he drank and ate it up. Jeremy never brought anything to these potlucks. And no one ever said a thing. Just bring yourself, they'd say, that's enough. And he believed them, and he went as he was, empty-handed, needy, and willing to receive. Now, the origins of potlucks, certainly church potlucks, are a little murky, but the story goes that sometime in the 16th century, there was a tradition that if a stranger showed up at your house, it didn't matter what you were doing, whether you were feasting or fasting or praying or reproducing, acknowledge your guest's presence and their need and act on it. You welcomed that person in despite the imposition it might have on you, and you say, whether your guest is a nephew of the prince or the pest of the hamlet, whether your crock is full of pungent dregs or royal stock, what I have in my pot is yours. Yours is the luck of the pot. And what you don't say, though it is true, is don't dare complain about it. <laughs> now, I believe that when Paul was writing to this church in Rome, 
he knew that church, at its best, every time we gather, is a kind of potluck. We bring ourselves, our lives, what we have to offer in the presence of God and what we have to offer each other. None of us are perfect. None of us have it all figured out. But we all of us have something to offer, something beyond money, something beyond food, something deeply knit inside us by our Creator and by those who have loved us into being. I believe that Paul knew in this church, and and we only get Paul's side of the conversation here, but when you read the letter to the folks in Corinth, you get the idea that they had some disagreements going on among them, and they probably had some disagreements about the gifts of the people coming to church, which gifts were better, which were more important. You can hear it. He always speaks so well in church. I could never do that. Or her voice is so beautiful. I wish I could sing that way. I don't know what would happen in this church if we didn't have her looking after the finances. Or, he's so good at organizing things, I'm just so glad to let him do that. You see, it's knit into our genetics, our upbringing, the recipes of our DNA that are embodied in each of us. The organizational ability maybe we got from our mother or our father's sensitivity or we're from a family of musicians or artists. He has his grandfather's gift of gab. He never meets a stranger. Or she's just like Aunt Betty. She knows how to make people feel at home all the time. There's the time and care that people spent in helping us cultivate these gifts, the piano lessons or the writing classes or the gifts with numbers or the art of gardening. The ways that people just helped us learn to be a human being, either by their good example or often their bad example. You see, I believe church at its best is a place where we get to hone these gifts, a place where we get to keep working on what's been given to us, a place where we get to knit them all together. Paul speaks earlier in this chapter about the church being the body of Christ. We are the living, breathing, thinking, acting body of Christ in the world now. And the ear cannot say to the foot, I have no need of you. And the brain can't say to the heart, I have no need of you. And the eye can't say to the stomach, I have no need of you. We're all in it together, and we all need one another. And so he lists what these different gifts are in the church, just some of them for him in the ancient church. He said some are apostles. Now, you may not think of yourself as an apostle. Apostle really means a messenger, often someone who went forth and started something new. But I believe some of us here are called to be apostles, called to say to people, you know, I've found a place that helps remind me of my best self. I found a place where love and forgiveness are two of the highest values. I've found a place that claims me and centers me for the week. It's a good place. It's so different than most of the places I go around town. It soothes me with its music. It grounds me with its prayers. It reminds me of the importance of taking care of my soul. You may remember back in March when our United Church of Christ Conference Minister Jim Antal came and spoke with us. He was so thrilled by our worship together. He said, you need to go out and tell people about what you experience here because so many people are searching for it and don't know where to find it. 
I believe more of us are called to be apostles than we realize, but we're not all apostles. Some of us are called to be prophets, people who have a sense that justice is not being done in the world, that the way God would like to see the world is not working out. Some of the things that the Pope talked about this week, to get a little angry that the disparity between rich and poor in this country is ever widening, or the fact that our correctional prison system is not working that is actually doing more harm to people and to our nation than it is doing good, and we should do something about it. We should write some letters. We should even read some books to educate ourselves about the process. But we're not all called to be prophets. Some of us are called to be teachers. In this congregation, what I see that looks like is we facilitate a conversation, a way to grow together and deepen. I'm so grateful for our church school teachers who take the youngest among us the people who are growing in their lives and faith at early stages and dedicate themselves twice a month to help these children ground themselves in their souls and the tradition we carry. Or the folks who lead a Bible study before worship at 10 a.m. so that they may reflect on the text together before we get here and worship together. I believe there are some teachers out here among us who may have some ideas, in fact, ideas across the spectrum that have yet to be realized, germs, seeds of ideas that have yet to flower, but this is a place to do it. Some of us are called to be miracle workers, deeds of power, Paul calls it, the kind of people who when someone says it can't be done or how will it ever happen, they manage to find a way out of no way. People who constantly view life in possibility. This is a great gift particularly in a culture that is often too cynical. Some of us have the gift of encouragement to see that possibility in someone that they are too scared or too shy to realize about themselves and to nurture it and to give them just enough courage to step out and try it. Many of us are healers here, not just doctors and nurses and massage therapists and acupuncturists or psychotherapists. Those are all healers to be sure. But sometimes people who just know how to sit with someone and be a healing presence in their lives. Helpers, organizers, those who know how to pray, those who know how to interpret, they are all gifts that Paul outlines. And they all need one another. As I look out across this beautiful congregation, I see the richness and depth of the gifts among us, this amazing potluck that has come here in the United Parish. And as you heard, we have this opportunity fair, which I actually consider an extension of our worship today. It's been organized by our discernment and engagement team. And I wanna say to you, if you're a visitor, or if you're just shy, I want to ask you to push yourself maybe just for two to five minutes more to come up here and see what's going on, to sample it, to hear from all the people who are creating ministry among us. Because I actually believe, as I've said last week and said continuously, that in the church we get to learn how to be community together so that we may take that gift out into the world around us and show yet a new way. Paul says, strive for the greater gifts and I will show you a still more excellent way. That more excellent way is then his next chapter in the letter, which is about love, the preeminence of love. And I believe that's what we're to be about when we come to this table, when we do ministry, 
is how we make this love glow and burn and kindle it in our lives so that we take it wherever we go. It's always that simple and yet that complex. The table has been laid out. You have each brought your dish. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. Come, for all things are now ready. Amen.